Hey, it's Thomas Frank. I've just got a quick note for you before we get into the show. If you've been enjoying the Inforium or my videos over on YouTube, then you, my friend, should get Nebula. On Nebula, you get ad-free versions of both this podcast and my videos, along with exclusive stuff like extended versions of those videos. And it's not just our stuff that you're going to get. Dozens of other creators are on Nebula, including Ali Abdal, Wendover Productions, Braincraft, Tier Zoo, and lots more. Nebula gives us a chance to experiment, and since everything's ad-free, it's also the best way for you to get our content. Head over to theinforium.com slash nebula to sign up now. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to yet another episode of The Inforium, a show about productivity and video games this week, I guess. Hi, Martin. Yo. So, uh, I see we have uh, an excuse to talk about video games on our very serious productivity podcast this I week. like an excuse to talk about games, because I never have time to play them, so now I That's can pretend. Fair. Wait, have, you, have you been playing any games at all? Um, I ran through Pokemon a while back. That seems like a decent time investment. Uh, not really. I mean, I just wanted to go through the story with a themed team. I played a little bit of Bowser's Fury the other day. I don't play a lot. That's fair. Uh, you know, packing takes time. Yeah. Well, to give the listeners a bit of a teaser for what's coming up in this episode, we're going to be breaking down some games that make you smarter. And that is a loaded phrase right there, because what does make you smarter even mean? We're going to hash that out. Uh, We're going to give you guys some suggestions for games that we've played or that we've at least heard of. Maybe that not both of us have played, but we'll share some of our own picks for games that we think are high up on that tier of, I don't know, games that help you develop cerebral capabilities Uh, and answer the question, do games make you smarter at all? Because I remember my parents telling me that video games are going to rot your brain. And then they'd go watch TV. Yeah. But first, as always, we got our project check-in. Because the Inforium is a disguised mastermind call. Which happens every two weeks. And then we talk about something topical. Uh, But I think it's a good good format for a podcast. Maybe it will give our listeners a bi-weekly opportunity to evaluate their own projects and their own progress and their goals. Yeah, and it makes me feel like I need to do something interesting, you know? It's that little yep. impetus to act. Uh, I, I have to come clean with some failures, or at least one big failure at the start of Project Check-In. I still have not gotten Notion videos recorded. I want to say I, I'm surprised, but I assume you've been doing house <laughs> stuff instead of that because you're kind of a one-track person who wants to be multi-track. I am a little bit of, yeah, actually, that's a pretty good descriptor. That's all, like, I'm in this photo and don't like it, Twitter report button kind of thing right there. Um, But yes, that is exactly how I am. I have been working on the basement. Uh, I've also been working on the investing video. And it's one of those things where uh, George Lois said, like, think long, write short. And that's kind of where I found myself with the investing video. I sat down and I recorded just an off the top of my head version of it that is an hour long. And I don't think I want to put on an hour long video. So I've been going through and I've basically just been doing a ton of research to make sure that I can recommend a specific and succinct strategy that doesn't take a whole lot of time to communicate, but that is backed up by rigorous research. Because I've been investing for 10 years, but I can't just be like, here's what I've done. It's going to work for everyone. I want to be able to say like, you know, I've looked into all these different things and know what I'm talking about. So I've been doing a ton of research for the investing video. 
while also working on the basement and just haven't had time to dig into the notion project yet it's just how it's been uh but on the positive note we and i think i think i may have said this in the last episode i can't remember we completely finished the set area so it is perfectly now set up for video recording and i have got most of the baseboards put in for the new area where my desk is going to be and i'm very excited for that area because i haven't designed it yet but that is going to be like a desk set where i can do notion videos i can do kind of like sitting down at desk videos with my computer and it's also going to be the music recording area so i'll have space for the piano space for guitars i may hang the guitars on the wall and then have other instruments and just you know have like a really nicely laid out area for having all of my music stuff close at hand to record things when inspiration hits or when I want to mix. So I'm pretty stoked there. The only problem is on the other side of the wall where my desk is going to be is the furnace room. So my next building science challenge is figure out how to soundproof that wall or room yeah. without creating some sort of issue with the mechanicals. I don't know. It's all a challenge. Sound, sounds tricky. Yep. Sounds tricky, but you know, one thing I got to say is like this process of buying a house and now doing the renovations myself has taught me so much about how my house works and not just how my house works, but just like building science in general. And I am just loving learning all this stuff. It's intensely satisfying to learn how my house works and to know that, hey, I can cut into a wall and not break my house down not worry about it so i may have said that last time but it's still very satisfying as i go along with it yeah uh so yeah i will turn project check-in over to you i know you've been very busy with move prep i have still been moving stuff while i've been packing also paring down a lot there is a lot of stuff i'm not taking with me so i'm finally finishing acting on my minimalist dreams that i Ooh. haven't had the time for because most of what we're going to move fits in my car, plus like a shipping container. It's um, not going to be a lot. I'm willing to cut down on a lot, and it's more apparent to me than ever that every extra thing I want to keep needs to justify itself because I'm paying and dealing with complications for every extra thing I want to move 900 miles. That's fair. Can we cash in on this and make a video called Martin's Minimalist Metamorphosis? I mean, maybe. I know you're all about them alliterations. Is gaining wings minimalist, or is that adding an extra feature I was fine without? Well, if you have wings, it's very minimalist because you don't have to touch the ground. So you're minimizing what you're touching. Okay, that's... All right, I'll, you know what? I'll allow it. Just <laughs> why not? But yeah, I've, I've just basically been paring down on everything possible. And it's pretty but cool. You're not getting rid of the piano, right? No, 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 no. Okay, good. I think that... That is the one thing that I wanted to have. That's good. Your your approach to minimalism is, I think, sane. You're not like, I want to get rid of everything and live in a completely white box. I think you're you're a little more minimalist than I would be. But it's it seems balanced. Well, I, I really just think that life is about the actions... You know, the things you do, the things you like doing, and therefore I want all the things I have to be related to the things I'm doing. 
I don't yeah. want a lot of things sitting around that I don't actively use because they're just taking space and mm-hmm. maybe requiring maintenance and all sorts of stuff. But if I have a camera lens, an extra lens, and then I actively use all of the lenses I have, that's probably the right amount of lenses. If there are some that I'm not using ever anymore, then I probably don't need that one. It's just things should be useful. Otherwise, I don't know why I would bother maintaining and keeping them. I have a bit of a different philosophy on that. I I won't say I'm completely on the opposite end of the spectrum, but I'm kind of to the point where like, I'm not going to keep things around because they're knickknacks or because I bought them for status. Like I'm, I'm never going to be like that kind of a person. But if I bought something that was useful to me once, and I think it could be useful for further creative projects in the future, then I'll keep it. Like I'm not getting rid of a ton of lenses, you know, just because like, Oh, I haven't used uh, my hundred millimeter macro in a few weeks. Like I'm not going to get rid of it. Well, you still think you might use it. If, yeah. if you realistically, you might use it. It yep. doesn't make sense to get rid of it. But I think a lot of times we're afraid to get rid of it because we think, what What if maybe I use it? And you kind of yeah. know you're not, you're not actually going to use it. Mm-hmm. You're just convincing yourself to keep it. But it's realistic. You would use a different lens. Yeah. I guess like to put it in like the whole Marie Kondo terms, the question like, does it spark joy? I worry that some people are like overly critical with that question. And like, does it spark joy right now? Do I want to use it right now? And for me, you know, I'm like, I'm not using it right now, but I don't want to get rid of it. I'm going to use it at some point. Yeah. And that, you know, and a lot of people like get the, they watch the TV show or something and they, they didn't actually read the book where she does specify things like what one should do with like a plunger, which, you know, doesn't really spark joy, but is useful sometimes. And, mm-hmm. and also the spark joy thing is really sort of a translation issue that kind of sends a little bit of a different emotional message really just, just what's a little the, bit like if, if you can express it in english what's the actual meaning of what you I said would, i don't know that i would want to say that now with my it's been a uh, several years since i actually read through it but ah so i don't want to put extra words in her mouth but spark joy is just a little bit more like it, it means a little bit something extra, I feel, in gotcha. English than what the book implies the point is. Yeah. Well, I haven't read the book and I haven't watched the Netflix show. but And the Netflix one I, is definitely, it's supposed to be watchable, you know, so they right. pick good examples of like, whoa, that's crazy. How would you, it's got to be interesting TV. It can't be a reasonable. Yeah. I see a lot of people talking about it on social media and it just seems like, yeah, the overall feeling is like, okay, it has to immediately spark joy right now and i've got a lot of stuff where it's like eh, it, i mean it doesn't necessarily do that but i don't feel the need to get rid of it and i don't feel like i'm gonna be unhappy keeping it so yeah, and, you, and you have a lot of extra space i yeah. think clutter is really a matter of whether you have too many things for the space you're in and i'm moving to a smaller space so yep. keeping the same things would mean that i create a now like twice as cluttered terrible location to live in yeah okay well uh, when is your move-in date because that's going to affect what we commit ourselves to that over the next few weeks sometime between the 15th and 20th and this is coming out what the first yep oh so we're gonna have an episode coming out possibly the day you just, move just right right potentially it depends somewhere in there okay well i imagine that's going to mean that you may not be committing to a bunch of non-moving goals. 
I've put basically everything else on hold. I'm not taking piano lessons. I'm not doing any therapy. I like I have my hands full. Everything's been paused. Well, I will commit to a lesson based thing in your stead because I actually so I signed up for a, an advanced learn to skate class. I want to get back into ice skating. And I showed up the first week and they're like, oh, whoops, there's a hockey tournament. Sorry, we didn't tell you there's no class. So that was a bummer. And then I showed up the next week, which was this last Saturday. And I guess an email had come out saying, hey, we changed the time of the class. And I just didn't see it because my email is crazy right now. Um, but I talked to the lady at the front desk and she's like, wait, you've passed a pre-bronze test, which is just like a test of different moves you got to do. She's like, you don't need this class. You should probably get a coach. And she gave me all these recommendations for coaches. And more importantly, showed me when they have freestyle times. And it's like every weekday morning. So I'm going to start going again and get myself a coach. And uh, that will be my personal update for our next podcast episode. Cool. And uh, the biggest thing that I'm going to commit to is getting that investing video out because I'm putting a lot of a lot of work into that thing. And I'm really hoping people enjoy it. I seem to get a lot of questions on, on my Instagram. Um, I just asked people what their personal finance questions were on Instagram. And you know, I got a lot. So that's great because I'm a nerd for personal finance and would love to do more videos on that topic. So we're going to see how this investing video goes. Uh, I'm anticipating that it should do, if not great, then you know, decently well the how to make money online video did well. And if that is the case, then I would like to branch into some additional personal finance topics. Um, I teased something that I'm creating, which is called the personal finance tech tree. Cause I just love the tech trees and games like civilization and stuff like that. So I'm going to make one mm. for personal finance. And That's then uh, I'm thinking about doing an episode on how to buy a house and maybe getting my real estate agent to be in that video to talk about like, you know, how do you find houses? What do you look for? What are some of the things that might be like turnoffs or deal breakers in a house? And then his wife actually is a lender. So she'd be somebody perfect to have in the video to talk about like, okay, how do you get a mortgage? How do you get pre-approval? All that kind of stuff. So that's a bit of a tease for what's coming up on the YouTube channel. And uh, we're also gonna have an episode quite soon following up the house buying episode we did back when the Inforium launched. Cause I think when, when we did that, I was in the process of closing, but I had not yet done the closing. Yeah. If I remember correctly. So there's a lot that I've learned since then, now that I actually have the house and have closed and moved in and all that. So we can kind of like finish out that duo of episodes and then get into anything else people want to know. So yeah, that's that. So why don't we get into what we're going to talk about, which is some games that we feel have made us smarter human beings. And uh, I, don't, I don't even know how to start this. I have a list of games, but I think I wrote this list with some of the games that you would probably add in mind. Yeah. So I guess first off, let's let's talk about this question in general. Like, can games make you smarter? Because I remember adults when I was growing up being like, hey, go outside, video games rot your brain. And even when I was a teenager, that line of thinking always seemed weird to me because like sitting and watching TV, that can be a mind numbing activity. It can actually be an enriching activity if you do it right. Like if you watch a movie very critically, but if you're just sitting there like watching SpongeBob episodes 
and just laughing at them and not really thinking about it, then yeah, it's not really doing much for you. But any video game involves user input. And, you know, even if it's Pong, there's some amount of skill development that is going to happen when you play that game. So just on a fundamental level, because there is a challenge that you have to meet, it's making you somewhat smarter, right? Yeah, and interactivity allows room for user improvement, which, Mm -hmm. I mean, the improvement is growth. It's just a question of what what types of growth and games offer like, you know, almost infinite choice as to what kind of growth that might be. Yeah. So a more interesting question to me is not do video games make you smarter, but which video games give you the most bang for your buck, or I guess like bang for your amount of time invested in terms of growth in different cognitive areas. Because when I think about like all video games, they're not equally made. If we think about like, um, you said Pokemon earlier, so I'm going to pick on Pokemon. Part of Pokemon is going to make you smarter, but I played a lot of Pokemon growing up and a lot of my time in that game was spent just like walking in circles in grass and hitting the A button while it went through menus to like kill Pidgeys and try to grind numbers up. And in terms of like, you know, playing a JRPG like that and making the numbers go up, you know, there, there may be some puzzles like definitely the strength puzzles later in the game in Gen 1, those are pretty good. But um, just grinding probably doesn't do a whole lot for you. No, it, well, you can play the game casually and not really need to do a whole lot, or you could play it competitively, and suddenly mm-hmm. you need to plan out a whole ability to deal with, uh, you know, a billion different species of Pokemon now via battling with type advantages and strategies. And it can be strategic and in-depth, and mm-hmm. it can be as mindless as raise Charizard to level 100 and never, ever raise another thing and win yep. against computers. And I guess before we move any further, I do want to say this. There's nothing wrong with doing that. If you want to relax by grinding away numbers on a Charizard, I have done this and enjoyed it immensely and just killing the Elite Four over and over again. That's fine. So, like, what I don't want people to take away from this episode is, oh, I have to go evaluate a game on how well it's going to, you know, improve my cognitive abilities. And if it doesn't score well, it's a waste of my time. Like, no, games are supposed to be fun. But I I just think it's an interesting question to think about, like, which ones actually give you a bit of extra benefit while you're playing and having fun. Yeah. And in this case, especially with Pokemon, but maybe with a lot of JRPGs, it's a matter of how difficult do you want it. Mm-hmm. to be i mean i played the last one with an entire grass type team which means i had common weaknesses and couldn't just you know use attacks mindlessly i had to use strategy for once because i was terribly weak to some things yeah but that is not how mm-hmm. most people will play the game and it's not how it expects you to play it and it's not how it builds it for you to play mm-hmm. and it does seem like the later generations add in more opportunities for that like optimization and competitive aspect that can really challenge your thinking more because, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, Gen 1 didn't have, uh, well, I don't even know what the other Gens have, but there's, like, different qualities. Yeah, there are, there are literally more, like, numbers on each yeah. Pokemon. You know, natures, abilities, EV training wasn't there in the beginning. There's it, it gets more and more complex where there's, like, ridiculous calculus going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. 
And if you wanted to optimize something, you might have to learn or use that to a degree. But And if you want to beat real humans in competitive play, you may have to. Yeah. Because, yeah, Gen 1 was, I think there was sex, and then the only other thing was if you gave them a rare candy, they didn't get as much of a stat boost from leveling up. And I want to say that was it. Well, I guess the other strategy was using, like, in-battle items, like X-Speeds and things like that. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't too crazy at the but time. But I digress. So uh, part of what made me interested in this is my friend Charles said he was driving uh, when the weather was bad and it was really it was like really icy, and a car spun out in front of him, and he actually spends a lot of time playing sim racers like a Seto Corsa, and he's built himself like a sim racing rig that has like a seat that can move in. It's like a car seat. Actually, I think it is a car seat, but like built for sim racing, like for babies. For babies, yes. Uh, and he's got a, a force feedback shifter and a force feedback wheel. And he plays in VR. So it's like... And these games are literally made to be as close to a real driving experience as possible. They have uh, physics modeling for traction on different surfaces and for tires. And you can get into all the different stats you get into with a real car, like your tire camber and things like that. And he, he said, like, when this car spun out, the basically the training he had gotten through sim racing kicked in and he did something like a maneuver to get past that car that he wouldn't have otherwise done and uh that led me down some rabbit holes and i've read that like actual race car drivers when they can't get extra time on the on the actual tracks to practice they will use sim rigs to get extra practice essentially and real race car drivers will compete for like good times on sims even if they haven't driven a lot in the sim itself and do well so when we're talking about actual hard skill transfer to something in the real world a game can actually be a good teaching tool it may not give you a one-to-one experience but it can actually simulate and replicate a lot of the same aspects as that experience and give you at least some training so that's one dimension of games making you smarter yeah I'll be one that requires probably an expensive and complicated setup. Well, maybe, maybe, but I mean, so there, there's muscle memory and obviously the closer you can get your tools to fit the actual thing, the closer you're going to get to simulating that and building the muscle memory. But there's also just knowledge. Like for him, I don't think it was specifically muscle memory that said, you know, cut right and go past this sliding car. As you see the tailfish tailing around, that's, that was something learned. And I think you could learn that through playing a sim racer on a track and and be able to execute it. Now, you're probably not going to learn the same kind of things from Mario Kart because the physics just really don't match up to real life. But in a game where the physics are literally programmed to be as close to real life as possible, there's, there's probably something there to be gained, even if you're just playing with a controller. Oh, yeah. Though, that said, playing that kind of a game with a controller is not fun. <laughs> I have tried it. It's not very fun. Uh, but there's other sim games too, like not just sim racing games. Um, Anna's been playing one called House Flipper. And I would say this is more on like the arcadey end of sim racing games or sim sim games because there are stuff you can do that just like really is like crazy shortcuts. But it does sort of simulate the process of cleaning up and renovating a house and you get to see some of the actual things you do. Now, I don't know how realistic that one is, but there's one coming out that I saw on Steam called Builder Simulator, where you literally have to go through the process of building a house step by step, 
like literally and of course this is what i would look at because i'm into diy stuff right now but mm-hmm. <laughs> and i swear i did not go looking for this it was yeah, just on go. my steam homepage. so i think steam just is listening to my conversations and knows what i'm interested in um but yeah i was like say on hard mode essentially it just it, there's no tutorial there's nothing at all but you have to do it all right you have to level and grade a foundation and pour the gravel and then pour a slab and put in rebar and like all the stuff you would literally do to buy or to build a real house so i'm thinking like hey you know for somebody who wants to learn how to build a house who doesn't have the opportunities to maybe buy all those materials and a part of like a piece of land or go get a job in construction there's probably quite a bit you could learn from playing a game like that yeah do you know if it happens to like, do you pick a location and then it loads in all of the legal requirements for that territory? Because that would be interesting, too. Because you were telling me the other day about how Colorado laws are different here. They are the different bottom. here, yeah. Because of, like, the soil. It'd be interesting if they added that layer in, too. And they were like, hey, you're on a hill. You're going to have to do different stuff. Um, Well, Steam's not loading. But I just realized I could probably use Google. I don't know what that is. What's Google? It's uh yeah, it's this website where you like look up things. See, I don't know if it does that. Let me see if I can find that. Well, that is asking for you know an extra many details. It's maybe it sounds like a simple layer to add, but it would absolutely not be. It's kind of cool though. On the on easy, the game will guide you step by step and allow you to learn by showing you full instruction. But on hard, you'll get no help. And it looks like pretty complex. Uh, I don't know if it's like, oh, pick your region, and now you have code from different municipalities. It would be very cool if it at least brought in um, climate regions. Yeah, just like some like uh, more general. Yeah, dividing lines. Which, if people are curious about the Colorado thing, basically in Colorado the soils expand. There's some chemical in the soil. I can't remember what it is, but it can literally make your foundation come up or down as uh, weather expands your soils or moisture. So in my basement, and I'd never seen this before because it's not a thing in Iowa, the walls, if you look at the studs behind the drywall, they come down to like a, a floor joist, but it's essentially floating. And then there's another floor joist on the floor that's attached down to the floor. And there's almost nothing connecting them except for the drywall itself. And then like there's a, a big nail and so if the soil expands and your foundation comes up, then that bottom one will basically like push the nail up and the top wall part will slide on that nail and hopefully not move too much. And it's basically made so that, you know, your studs aren't going all the way down to the slab. And if they were to push up, they wouldn't be pushing up on the rest of the house. That's the, the gist of it anyway. The buildings breathe here. The buildings breathe here. Yes, they do. Uh, the really nice thing about it is that little gap between those two different floor joists, I was able to run my Ethernet between it. And then I just slap my baseboards right on top of the gap, and Bob's your uncle, I guess. Do you, do you have an Uncle Bob? I guess the result of a successful <laughs> technique is that Bob becomes your uncle. Some man named Bob, know, he gets an email. You're now maybe an uncle. Maybe later I'll look up why that's a phrase, because I am not quite sure what it might have originally meant. That's... You know, but that's a later time. That's yeah. Tune in for the next episode of the Emporium where you're going to learn the origin of Bob's your uncle. If Martin remembers to look it up, <laughs> you better write it down. Now I, now I teased it.
Hey, let's take a quick break and pay some bills. So this episode is sponsored by our good friends over at Skillshare. And if you haven't heard about Skillshare before, it is an excellent platform for building practical skills and building your creativity in a ton of different practical specific areas. They have classes on game design, which we're talking about games in this episode. So I wanted to leave with that, but also classes on business marketing, on productivity, on video editing, video animation, illustration, Photoshop, tons of technical practical skills that you can use to boost your career prospects and do better creative work. And I'm saying that word creative work right now because I actually have a brand new class on Skillshare for this year, all about productivity for creatives. So if you're somebody who does a lot of creative work, if you make your own podcasts or if you make videos or if you write or draw and you wanna be more productive with your output, you wanna be able to you know work when you're feeling uninspired or you wanna feel more inspired more often, that is what this class is all about. We talk a lot about how to build your inspiration muscle, how to actually get on a schedule with your creative work and stick to it without that creative work taking on a robotic quality. How a schedule can actually, if set up correctly, help you feel more inspired and more creative. We also talk about how to reduce the friction in your creative process. No matter what you do, there's probably parts of your process that you could optimize to make the whole thing a lot smoother and a lot faster. So again, if you're a creative person, I think you're gonna get a lot out of this class. And there are actually three bonus interviews with other creative people who I look up to and admire, uh, including my friend Charles Cornell, who is a fantastic jazz pianist, Jordan Harrod, who is an AI researcher and graduate student, and Ali Abdal, who you probably know if you listen to this podcast and his podcast, Not Overthinking. He's another productivity expert and a doctor. So they've got some additional insights at the end of the class, which is sort of bonus resources for everyone who takes it. So if you want to take that class, you can actually do it for free by going over to Skillshare.com slash Inforium and signing up to get a free trial. Skillshare is already a super affordable platform with their plans starting at less than 10 bucks a month for the annual subscription. But that free trial gets you unlimited access to the platform and you can take a ton of classes during the trial's duration, including my classes. So once again, Skillshare.com slash Inforium. Go check out my class if you're curious. And once again, thank you to Skillshare for sponsoring this episode and supporting our show. And another huge thanks goes out to our second sponsor this week, which is Hover. Hover is the best place on the internet to get your hands on a domain name, which is something that you're absolutely gonna wanna do if you haven't done so already. And here is why. Your domain name and whatever website you attached to it can be your online home base where you can show off your work and you can impress potential clients, potential employers, or an audience if you're a content creator. All these social media platforms that we use, they're great. They allow us to get more customers, more contacts, more clients to build our audiences, but they're platforms that we don't own, they're platforms that we don't control, and they change from time to time. So it's a great idea to be active on those platforms, but to also have your own online home base, to have a URL that you can put on business cards, on resumes when you apply for jobs. And the first step to building that site is to get your domain name. And it's actually the first thing you're gonna wanna do, even if you're not ready to build a site yet, because domain names can be claimed, and then if somebody has the one you want, you're not gonna be able to get it. So get it as soon as you can. My domain name is thomasjfrank.com. And if you go there, you're going to see tons of information about me, content I've created. It is, again, my online home base. And here's why Hover is the best place to get that domain. They have over 400 different extensions to choose from. So you can do lots of fun ones like .lol or .limo, but they also have your classic .coms and .mes. And more importantly, a lot of other registrars annoy you during the signup process. They've got lots of upsells and things they want to get your money from. Hover's checkout process is friction-free and super quick. And once you have your domain name, 
They give you some extra tools to take it that much further. They give you an email tool so you can hook it up to a professional email address like thomas at collegeofvogeek.com, which is mine, and a connect tool, which lets you easily connect it to website builders and even online store builders if you wanna build your online store. Like my fiance Anna has her own online store on Etsy. You could redirect your domain over to your Etsy store if you wanted to. So if you want to get 10% off of your first domain purchase and support this show and lock down that domain name before somebody else grabs it, go over to hover.com slash Inforium. That is H-O-V-E-R.com slash Inforium. Once again, hover.com slash Inforium. And big thanks as always to Hover for sponsoring this episode of our show, which we are now gonna get back into. Okay, so we've talked about simulation. Um, I wrote down some, I guess, like aspects of cognitive improvement that games can help you with. And if you have other ideas, uh, let me know. But these are the ones I came up with. So there are games that can help you with uh, logic and deduction, with planning ahead, with spatial reasoning, uh, and then with problem solving, which I broke down into two different categories, complex problem solving, which would be multi-step or many different moving parts, and pressured problem solving. So under time pressure or something like that. Uh, social deduction, and I kind of gave this its own separate category against just logic and deduction, because I'm thinking of games like Among Us, where you have to like try to figure out if somebody's lying and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Uh, just optimization you kind of talked about like you could play pokemon very casually or you could play it where you're trying to basically like maximize the synergy of your team and how strong each one is and then we had specific skill development and then i I don't really know if this is like its own category in this list or if it just can fit into all the other ones but um multiplayer or pvp really encourages additional development in many of these categories because you're playing against human players who can adapt and you know get smarter in their own right so if you want to be competitive you have to also get smarter yeah and then i guess some games might have a level of social intelligence involved depending yeah so i talked about um uh social well social deduction actually that's kind of a separate thing because social deduction is, is trying to figure out if people are lying but there's also just i don't even know what the term for it is like politics i mean it may be if you're trying to get people to cooperate with you or All right. imagine this isn't this isn't a video game, but imagine you're playing D and D. Social intelligence yep. might help you do things. Okay, okay. what I'm really write all it sorts down of as... different things, but it wouldn't always be deduction. Sometimes it would just be how can you get people on your side? How can yeah. you? Oh, okay. I'm gonna write down as social intelligence and like persuasion as one of the yeah. subcategories. So those are kind of some of the areas of cognitive development that games can help you with. They might not be all of them. If you're on the YouTube version of this podcast, let me know some other categories down in the comments. That would be interesting. And then I just wrote down a bunch of games that I've played that fit one or more of these. Um, and before we get into games, and I think we can just sort of you know talk about games we've played that we think are, are great for this, this kind of thing. Um, I'll just say that there are definitely categories of games that lend themselves more to these areas of development than other categories. That's not to say that these other categories aren't good for it, but like puzzle games, strategy games, like RTS games, simulation type games, these are really, really high in amount of game time you spend developing these skills. And there's another thing about game design. So with almost any game, you start playing it 
and you have to learn the rules of the game. So there's some learning that happens right there. But with a lot of games, it gets to the point where the only real thing you're doing is just figuring out, okay, how do I adapt the rules of the game I already know to this situation? And a lot of times, like, that's not very challenging at all. You it get to a point where you're good and yeah. it, it isn't going to get much more creative afterward. Yeah. Or like, I don't know, maybe maybe what you need to do is just hammer away at the challenge and it's just, it's pure trial and error. And there comes a point where like, that's not doing much for you outside of that specific challenge. I think of a game like uh, Cuphead. Cuphead is literally all about trial and error and just in like Twitch platforming and shooting skills so you know every single boss fight you go into they have some different gimmick but it's really just like another opportunity for you to apply the very limited tool set you've been given to a specific challenge and there's some value there but in terms of like if it takes me an hour to beat a boss 55 minutes of that hour is okay i figured out what i need to do and i just literally need to build the twitch muscle memory to do it in this specific instance and you can't and, necessarily guarantee that will like help you yeah the next one they might just switch like a zelda dungeon where they're like yeah that item's actually going to be de-emphasized from now on and it, well i do think so it does help you in the future but it's a narrow area like they you don't you don't start cuphead at the hardest boss if you did maybe you could beat it but it's more efficient to have this gradual difficulty curve that goes up over time and even outside of one game, like hours put into Cuphead are probably going to make me somewhat better at picking up a game like uh, Celeste or Contra or Hollow Knight. You know, it's different game, different mechanics, but at the end of the day, they're all twitchy platformer boss fight side scroller games. But are those kind of skills going to translate to other challenges? Are they flexible is a question. And that's actually a very important question to ask here. I remember back in, when we were in high school, there was a game that came out called, I think it was like Brain Age for the Nintendo DS. Yeah, I had that. Yeah, and it was like one of, it was probably the most popular example that I remember of uh, these brain training games. And they were marketed like, oh, you just five minutes a day in this brain training game will make you smarter. And then it turns out, um, I would have to pull this, but I read some research a few years back about how you know, when you do these really, really simple brain training tasks, really what they help you do is get better at those types of tasks. And that's kind of it. Yeah. I would say skill transfer as a concept is often overestimated. Like Mm -hmm. the flexibility of the specific thing you're doing isn't guaranteed. So that the trick is really to be doing a lot of different examples surrounding it. And brain age gives you only a handful of exact things you can do. Mm Mm-hmm. I used it to try to teach myself to write left-handed. That was that's what I did with Brain Age. That that's was pretty interesting. Interesting, but it wasn't yeah. the game's design that did that. But I think you can design a game where the the challenges are more complex. They're more integrated. You have to use multiple skills at once, and that actually applies to things outside of that genre of game. Just like learning a language doesn't just make you better at learning languages. Because there's a whole bunch of meta skills that you have to bring to the table when you're practicing a language that are going to help you in other areas of your life. Yeah. And like this is where I was I was sitting down like thinking, okay, what kind of video do I want to write on this? Because I want to do a video on it. And you know, you quickly get to this this point where you realize like the dividing wall between video games and that which is not video games 
is really permeable and fuzzy. Like, you know, if, if you're doing a training exercise for your job and it's on a computer and it's not called a game, but it's software, or you're in my math lab doing math exercises, like there's a lot of transfer and similarity between things like that or things like on, on brilliant versus like things on a video game. Yeah. And you know, maybe not like Pokemon or Mario, but a puzzle game is going to have a lot of similarities. Some puzzle games are literally closer to programming than they are to other video games like Mario Kart. Yeah. Part of it's just how you dress it up. Yep. Yeah. So really what I see, what I see video games as is just like software that gives you goals and challenges uh, that keep you interested in, in progressing. And in many cases, what a game does that, uh, say, your homework doesn't do, excuse me, is wrap the whole thing up in a story. And, like, you know, kind of, like, boxes it up as, like, a, here's a, it's a game. But at the end of the day, that may be the main difference. There's one game, and I'm not going to recommend it in, in my list because, number one, I haven't played it, and two, I've heard it's incredibly difficult, but it's called Shenzhen IO. Uh, I do have some recommendations from the same developer, but that game literally, you literally have to program. And when you buy it, you get a PDF full of documentation, just like you would for learning a programming language or framework. And you're encouraged to print it out and put it in a three ring binder. <laughs> and like it, it, it gets to the point where you're like, okay, is this a game or is, am I just getting a job as a programmer for a fake company <laughs> that you paid to get <laughs> that you paid to get. Yeah. Yeah. Like builder simulator. Am I, is this a game or am I just doing work and not getting paid for it and not having to sweat, I guess until yeah. I come up with builder simulator VR and you put heat lamps in your room to make it yeah. extra. I accurate. mean, some, some of that stuff really will add to the, that just made me think of the skyward sword sword battles. And I was like, yeah, you can get really into some of the physical game stuff. Mm-hmm. That's true. And I I didn't put any on here, but I have to imagine VR has a lot of potential for games that can maybe translate to real world skills. So yeah. that would be cool to see. Okay, so with all of that preamble, I guess, out of the way, I want to talk about some games that we feel are sort of high on that list uh, of games that, you know, for the amount of time you put in, give you a lot of cognitive benefits. And I will actually let you start and pick whichever one you want. And we'll just we'll go then through I'm, a few. I don't have a number in, in mind. I'm going to have to go with uh, my clear favorite and blatant example anytime I think of smart games. And that's uh, Baba Is You. Because that game is the smartest game I have ever played. The game and is it's fantastic. also charming. It's so, it's so ridiculously intricate. And there were so many parts of that I couldn't solve just for like a week or two. And I'd have mm -hmm. it in the back of my head just like, how am I supposed to do it? But in the in the game, basically, you rewrite the rules of the game on the fly. You're a little, you're a little thing called Baba. You want to get to a thing. flag. Generally, you want to get to a flag. Even that can be changed later. And there will be little sentences on the level that describe things like "wall is solid" or something to that effect. I don't remember mm -hmm. the actual nouns or adjectives right now. So, like, if you want to get through the wall, one potential strategy would be to you can push the text generally again and you would push the word wall off so that or solid so that wall is solid is no longer stated directly then the walls you would phase right through them you yeah. rewrite the whole game as you go 
and you kind of there's no choice but to think incredibly outside of the box for this Mm -hmm. there's tons of planning ahead sometimes stuff moves in the level and you have to figure out the right time to rewrite the rules in order to make it make sense it's i don't know that any other game i've played has made my brain work so hard yeah yeah that's the kind of game where after 20 minutes you're you're mentally exhausted which yeah, maybe you play like is, one or two levels and you leave you're done yeah. now that may be a good hallmark or a good uh barometer for like does the game help you get smarter are you literally mentally exhausted after one or two levels that's a really i actually really like that because that's how i used to decide have i done a good language thing if i'd have a 40 mm-hmm. minute conversation in french i would be drained afterwards so i knew it was working yeah that's how you know you're learning something so if this game mm-hmm. exhausts my brain clearly my brain is doing something yeah yeah i i also love baba's you i remember it, it's one of those games where you feel like an idiot for so much of it and then it all clicks into place and you're like i'm a genius and those yeah, kind of yeah, games are wonderful i remember the first time like like you said it's, it's all blocks and you know the the blocks could be the actual things but then there are also filled up blocks uh just words and i remember the first time it's like you know baba is you that's three blocks and the next one was like flag is win and there's a rock sitting out in plain sight and there's the word rock so you just move flag and you put rock is win yeah and like it, it does a it. good Boom. job of of getting you through the first few levels just to try to get you into that concept but the yeah. later ones and i've i've beat the game it gets very confusing yeah i need to go and and keep playing i'm only i think i'm only in the second world but even it, the second world had a bunch so of levels stump me but it's, it's crazy you, it's like you said you feel like a genius when you did it you're like i mm-hmm. believe in myself i believe in the power of my brain to solve things actually yeah. that's a hidden benefit you might actually boost your confidence because that dopamine is going to be sweet. That's true. Actually, yeah, that these kind of games are great confidence boosters for for real life and for uh, maybe even challenges in your academic life or in your career where you're like, oh, it's too much for me. Language is too much for me. Math is too much for me. And then, you know, play a game like this. And you're like, this level is too much for me. And then you constantly prove to yourself, no, it's not. All I need to do is break down the problem, figure out this little granule of it, and then figure out how that fits into the greater picture. Oh, wait, that's what math is. That's yeah. what language is. Yeah. Okay. And with this, this game in particular, I think one of the best things about it is that it forces you to challenge your assumptions, which is the basis of solving all sorts of problem in mm-hmm. life. What what are the hidden assumptions that, like, walls are solid? That I might just assume that and never even consider making them not solid. What are the assumptions you're starting with in any problem in life that could be changed? You just didn't question it yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, I'll use that to segue into the first game that I'm going to tout, uh, which is not going to be the one you probably are guessing. I will talk about Satisfactory later. Um, I'm going to talk about a game called Opus Magnum. So Opus Magnum is a game that was developed by the people who made Shenzhen IO, that programming game that I mentioned before. And it, it is actually a game where you kind of program, but in a way that's very accessible. Uh, it's a game where you build machines to do alchemy. So it might be like turn this lead album or atom into gold. And the whole point of the game is to build a machine where you, you assemble whatever it is you're supposed to assemble and you deliver it to a spot where it's supposed to go. And uh, for the most part, I think, I think you, you does it six times when your machine turns on. And then it, it gives you a score in three different areas. 
uh, area that you took up because like it's basically this infinite field of hexagons all put together. The cost, which is just how many parts you use to do it, and then how much time it took to do it. And you build your machines by first building out, uh, you, you place your pieces on the grid and it could be like arms that will grab the atoms and rotate them or push them. You can build tracks which your arms can go on. Um, actually, that's kind of it. It's just arms and tracks for the most part. And then there might be little places where like you will you know, move an atom of something over this calcification rune that turns it into salt because maybe you have a recipe where like it needs uh, three things of salt plus an atom of gold or something like that. Um, so you build your machine, but then you have to program instructions. So every arm is like a track that you program. And, and the programming is really easy. You're not writing methods. You're literally just saying, grab, rotate, rotate whatever you're holding, move on the track, that's it. But it gets ridiculously complicated when you have a ton of different arms and they're all going in sequence. So you you work like a programmer. And the beautiful thing about this game is almost anyone I think can build a solution to most of the problems, at least in the first part of the game. It will be a clunky, inelegant, inefficient solution, maybe, but I think almost anybody can figure out how to beat at least the first couple of worlds of puzzles. But once you beat a puzzle, it gives you a score on those three areas, area, cost, and how many cycles it took to build the thing. And if you have friends who've played it, there's a scoreboard for each of those things. So the real beauty of this game is once you've beaten a puzzle, now the second challenge is, okay, how can you optimize your solution for each of or all of these different things? And that is where I come away after playing one or two puzzles with my brain just absolutely exhausted. Building a crappy solution, that's easy. But building something elegant where like, you know, you're know, you minimizing the amount of time it takes or it's only in one little tiny area, it's so hard, but I love it. That sounds exactly like what a lot of people will end up doing in programming. Yep. Just, so that, that line of thinking, I've made it work, but how can I improve it so that it uses fewer resources or is clearer mm-hmm. re- to read for someone else so that it's not so weird to look at like that. Yeah. That is exactly a useful skill. Well, it's kind of a good illustration for anybody who wants to get into programming, but who doesn't understand the point of learning the fundamentals of computer, of computer science, which was me uh, when I was learning JavaScript and then PHP as a teenager. And then early in my early twenties, I was like, oh, well, I, why do I even need to use methods? Why do I even need to use all these different super optimized sorting algorithms? I can just write all the code that does what I want right here and then call it a day, right? Like, why does it matter? Why do I need to pay thousands of dollars to go to college to learn about, you know, is bubble sort more efficient than insertion sort for this particular kind of problem, all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, you play a game like this and you start to realize like, no, optimization really matters. If all we did was just build the first working solution, then our world would just be like this ugly, inelegant mess of unoptimized crap that didn't work very well. And specifically, we'd have component parts that you wouldn't be able to easily put together because they'd just all be kind of a house of cards that did something, but not very well. So especially in programming, learning the fundamentals of how to make your code elegant and how to make it run fast and how to make it smaller, that's super important. 
I think people who were, were programming back in the olden days understood this better because maybe they had like one kilobyte or they kilobit. They were also of, wizards at it. <laughs> they had to fit um, just so much into so little. One thing that still blows my mind is uh, the, the, the music in the fourth world of, or I guess the fourth level of each Mario world in Super Mario Brothers. It's the same music from the first level just sped up a bit and changed up a bit because that allowed Miyamoto is the one who made it, right? I believe uh, it was which game? Uh, super Mario brothers. Uh, you know, I don't know to what extent made what made means. I think well, I the think, idea was his. Did, didn't you tell me that he's the one who did this? Like he did all these tricks to fit the game on the tiny cartridge with um, the super limited amount of memory. Or was it Iwata? Iwata Iwata. did this with Pokemon Gold and Silver. Oh, that's what it was. That's when you told me. So, like, they had had Johto on the cartridge, and Iwata did some crazy magic that allowed them to fit an entire extra world into it Mm -hmm. within the incredibly limited space. But like you're saying, like, now we have, you know, we have so much space, so much RAM. So it's just, why not just make it huge? Back then, you didn't have a choice. It had to be efficient. Yeah. That, that's the beauty of constraints. They make you more creative. They make you find solutions where you otherwise would have just been like, oh, hey, I have this giant infinite room with infinite resources. Okay, I'll just throw something together. And it's like this creaking steampunk monstrosity, but it works technically and you just move on. So that's what I love about Opus Magnum. It, it just like pushes you to optimize, especially if people are on the leaderboard and they've beaten you. But um, what I found is I had one friend who had played a bit and he was higher than me on the leaderboards for the first couple of puzzles. So I was very intently trying to beat him. And then I got to the first real world of puzzles after the tutorial and realized his name was gone. So I think he quit really early. And I was a little sad because I have nobody playing Opus Magnum and challenging me. But it is cool because even if you don't have friends, you get like a graph, um, a distribution of like the whole game player basis solutions for each of those three areas. So even if you don't have friends who can give you a specific number to shoot for, you can see like, okay, it looks like, you know, my cost was 60 and it's looking like people got it down to 20 for this solution. So back to the drawing board. Yeah. So you're just like, I know it's possible. Mm-hmm. I know it's possible. Now I must do it. Uh, what's another game for you? Um, Maybe, maybe braid. Braid is one of the very first games I got a Steam account for. Mm. And it's a unique style of puzzle, but I don't think, you know, part of the thing is you can reverse time. You can do a little bit of time travel tricks in the game, yeah. which obviously we uh, can't do that in real life. But I think what it what it really helps you do is you have to plan ahead in order mm-hmm. to use this skill. You really have to know how am I going to do this ahead of time and keep trying things. Actually, the same applies to games like Celeste, where largely it's you need to do this right in in more or less one go to make yeah. all everything line up, make the stars align. So how are you going to imagine everything ahead of you using the weird powers at your disposal mm-hmm. to make it happen? Yeah, Celeste is an interesting example because you know at the surface level you think, oh, it's just a twitchy platformer. And for maybe the first couple of worlds, that is what it is. But yeah, later in the game... I'm thinking specifically the third world, I think, is where this really starts happening. There there come levels where you need to know what you're going to do like 15 moves from now before you even start. Because yeah. there's 
timing elements. There's stuff that's going to go away the moment you touch it, like all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, and you're physically going through it. Sure, that's pretty like twitchy or your reflex is good, which is still mm-hmm. a useful skill. But you can't do it until you've actually solved how it works. And I then chapter nine, the the extra final chapter they added, that is very challenging. And I beat <laughs> all the B and C sides and chapter nine in that game. And it it is very complicated. I have also you have to deal with failure nine. quite a lot. You have to die tons and tons and tons of times. Yeah, it's true. And you know, maybe that's maybe that's just a lesson about life too. Something interesting about Celeste. So in addition to all the platforming stuff, that game made me more emotionally intelligent. And it did that through its story. And I think I can't think of another game, any other game where the story has actually made a real significant change in my outlook on life. Because I played that game and um, I had never really dealt with any kind of like significant anxiety in my life before, Um, which, you know, I guess that's a statement of privilege. But yeah, I mean, I grew up with, you know, you know, go through hard times and stuff like that. But the kind of anxiety where you're like, I don't understand why this is happening or why I physically feel bad right now. That kind of thing where people had described it to me, but I had never experienced it. That game and its story teaches you about that. And I don't think any other game story that I, at least this that I've played has had that much of an impact on me personally. Yeah, I thought the story was really cool for that. I like when stuff like that that's generally hard to... You can say it in words, but maybe you can't transfer the feeling of understanding. Mm-hmm. That's a... Uh, you know, like part of why I liked also uh, John Green's book, Turtles, Turtles All the Way Down, because he expresses some things about obsessive compulsive disorder that are hard to express. And mm-hmm. in this case, the game's doing sort of the same thing. It's getting into a thing that's hard to transfer to people who don't directly have it. Yeah. And when you're playing through a game, you're playing as that character. So there's a little bit of self-insertion that happens. And maybe that, you know, that interactive medium actually allows you to empathize with the character a bit more. I'm not sure, but all I know is the way they wrote that story was absolutely fantastic. So good additional thing on our list. I don't think I had Celeste on there, but I would add it absolutely for that reason, but also for the reason that you stated. Um, So the one you had mentioned was, was braid, right? Yeah. Yeah. Braid gets braid gets hard (laughs) in the later levels and it's, it's a platformer, but it's never like, Oh, the platforming was too hard. It's, figuring out like what do you need to do to get yeah. to, to get from where you are to the key or the door or whatever it is it's a much slower planning ahead issue than celeste but mm-hmm. you still need to basically and there are some levels where you when you walk forward time goes forward and all the creatures go forward in their pattern and if you walk mm-hmm. to the left they all go backwards so you find yourself like you can't make a lot of mistakes and you need to understand the perfect pattern that will let you get through it. Otherwise it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Or you'll, you'll jump on a creature to defeat it. And then if you go backwards, it just like respawns itself back in time, essentially. Yeah. So, and then some of them you don't want to kill all kinds of stuff. Um, the next one that I will recommend is called the Talos principle. So I think a lot of people playing this have probably played portal in the past or portal two. I also think those two games are pretty high on the whole like cognitive challenge for amount of time you put in uh, into the spectrum. 
Talos Principle is more of that and harder. Uh, it's not Portals, but it's a 3D-based game where uh, you're based, like every single thing you do is a, is a challenge of some sort. And usually the tools you're given are like little weird surveyor guns that open gates or pause enemies that might be coming towards you or will disable um, like a gun turret or something like that. And you're basically just like, navigating your way through mazes with these tools and additional ones that come up as the uh, story goes on. And there's just tons of puzzles in the game that get progressively more and more difficult. And it's just one of those games where I, I love it because it's not a game where you're like, oh, hey, look, another puzzle. Let me use the exact same thing that I used last time. You know, every single puzzle challenges you in some new way. And it's one of those games like Baba's You where you'll you'll try a puzzle and just get totally stuck and have to come back a day later, which is great. Also, that game's got a really interesting story. It does involve uh, reading a lot of virtual text files on a virtual computer, but it's like a really interesting transhumanist future story that I will not go into detail about, but I think it's worth playing. It's a cool game. If you like Portal, play it. You got any more? I know you have more because you actually gave me some of the ones on this list. Um, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna go with one that I actually didn't list earlier and that I didn't think of until now. A game that this is a different a different kind of skill. This isn't necessarily the same, but a game like Don't Starve, where you have to deal with constant resource management. Yeah with dire consequences for failing. But I mean, real life involves a ton of clever resource management and being more mm-hmm. clever than the next person might give you an advantage. And that's true. Help you do things well. Okay, yeah. I absolutely think Don't Starve should be on the list. I'm gonna write it down actually. Cause it's kinda like how you were talking about right. programming. All right, like if you just act as if you have infinite resources, sure, you, yep. maybe you'll be fine but you can come up with a better way. And I mean, this could end up transferring to a lot of things, but it could even be as simple as literally the food example in the game. You know, use all the stuff in your cupboard and you save money. How Mm -hmm. can you do it the most effectively? It's something that actually applies in a world of limited matter. Yeah, man, that game. I don't know why I didn't think about it. That is a game where the first maybe 10 times you play you you might die in 10 different ways that you wouldn't have predicted whether it be oh crap i'm freezing and i didn't have a coat on me i literally could have brought one from the base but i didn't think about it and i went too far or i starved or something came into my base and killed me or all kinds of things and you have to learn not only like what you need to avoid killing you uh, but also like you're you're kind of racing against the clock especially when you get to the hard seasons like summer and winter. Whenever I spawn into a fall game, I'm like, okay, I have 30 days before winter. I need to stock up a ton of food, get a lot of jerky. I need to get uh, like wool to make coats and all all this kind of stuff. And it does take a lot of forward planning. Um, Another one that I, I didn't actually write down in my list of like cognitive areas where you can develop is uh, just developing like, like learning the intricacies of a system and all the the facts and knowledge there. Now, I don't know how transferable that is to learning the like another system's intricacies, 
but I have to think like if you, if you put a lot of practice into like memorizing a ton of facts about one thing, like, you know, all the different crafting recipes in Minecraft or the different recipes in don't starve, you probably get a little bit better at doing that for, for other things as well. I don't know if it's as fluid and transferable as something like spatial reasoning or complex problem solving, but it is there. Um, and then don't starve also has pressured problem solving because you're on a time limit and you're almost always running low on something, which is cool. Yeah. Yeah. And there are other games like minute, which makes you solve puzzles within a minute and then it reboots you every time that minute passes. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's another game involving space that has a somewhat similar time loop concept where you have a time limit to solve something, but I'm failing to remember its name because I haven't played it. Yeah, I can't think of what that is. Um, you're talking it's about a, it's not FTL, right? I haven't played that one yet. Something I don't remember. You know what? I don't remember what the name is. But games with time limited, pressured solving like that are really interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm gonna recommend a game called Slay the Spire. Uh, and I will also tack Magic the Gathering onto this recommendation. Anna said I was cheating by listing Magic because it's not a video game. But, haha, there's Magic Arena. That's true. There is so a video game. So it technically is a video game as well. Uh, but I'll, I'll use Slay the Spire as the real example. Um, it's a deck building game, kind of like Magic, except for you start out with just 10 really basic cards five cards that just do a strike that do damage, and five cards that do, do some block for you. And then every time you win an encounter, you get one of three random cards plus maybe some artifacts and, and some gold where you can go to the shop. And you just kind of go through this path and, and there's actually branching paths. So you can choose where you want to go uh, for each encounter. Like you may go to the shop or you may go to another encounter. And uh, so as you go through the challenge and it's a bit of a roguelike where you're kind of going through the same map with some procedural generation and randomness each time, you are building your deck and building your strategy on the fly. So there are many different levels of strategy to this game. There's the in the match strategy where, you know, I've made this mistake many times realizing that if I had played two cards in the opposite order that I did, I would have won. But because I played them in the wrong order, didn't think through, I died. It may be a card like, oh, you know, okay, take every other card in your hand, discard it, and it will give you like a, a throwing knife that does four damage. And I'm like, cool, okay, I could use that, but whoops, I should have used this other one that would have doubled my next attack and I accidentally threw it away by discarding it with this card. I would have won, but now I'm dead. So every single turn, you have to look at what's in your hand and think not only what should I use because I have limited energy, but also what order should I use it in? And what is the enemy going to do? There's all these different considerations planning ahead, but then on a bigger level, the next step up, every single time you're presented with those three cards to choose, you're like, okay, what kind of deck am I building here? Because one pick would be better than another. So there's a lot of optimization there. There's a lot of forward thinking strategy there. And if we talk about a game like Magic, well, that's not uh, gradual deck building like it is in Slay the Spire. You come into a match with a deck already built, but there's a lot of that uh, social intelligence there. Yeah. Like, what is my opponent going to do? What kind of play style does my opponent typically like to use? And uh, unfortunately, this is getting into big cheating territory because Magic Arena, the video game version, doesn't allow for greater than two-player matches. But when you sit down in the real world and you play... Wait, wait, wait. 
okay, there, I, there's a way this isn't cheating. But when you sit down and you play a multiplayer game, like in uh, the Commander format, there's a ton of political intrigue as well. And you're thinking, okay, how can I make myself appear to not be a big threat right now? Or how can I maybe forge an alliance with this player over here? There's like a lot there that yeah. again is, is applicable to the real life. And it's not cheating because there's a game called Tabletop Simulator that oh, you can so get you can on technically Steam. set yourself up to do that. Yes. And uh, what is it? There's, there's a website. I can't remember. It's Frog Something. I can't remember what it is. Maybe Garamay can find it for the show notes. But uh, you can put in like the magic cards you may have in real life and you can build your real decks as a list of cards that can then be imported into Tabletop Simulator. So technically so not So like cheating. a more complex version of pointing a webcam at your deck. Yes. I guess you could also port a webcam at your deck, but that sounds really inconvenient. And annoying. Oh yeah, I I imagine there would be inconveniences there, but I've known people to do it. And but yeah, I guess yeah, you could do it. The you need kind of like a high really make it for me. You know, yep. some some deck styles only work with the politics and yep, and it's really really tricky to make yourself grow in power, but also not look like a threat at the same time. Mm-hmm. Also, I had to learn a, a statistics thing to build my deck back when yeah. we were doing that. Like in order to make sure that I was doing a super fast growth green deck. So I ended up having to learn to a small extent. I definitely wouldn't say I understand this concept, but hypergeometric distribution, which is mm-hmm. the type of math you need to do to know if I have a deck of 100 cards and this many land cards, what are the chances that I will have at least three in my opening hand? And I, I wanted that chance to be 50% of either three land cards or two land cards and one of my doubling mana cards. Yeah. So it's like ridiculous statistical stuff that you have to learn mm-hmm. to get into how to build your deck properly to make sure your chances of getting an opening hand you want are high yeah and i mean it's, it doesn't even stop at just opening hands there's like the, the consideration of mana curve as well where you know how many low mana cards do i have in the deck versus high ones what's the chances i'm going to draw a high one that i can't use in my opening hand because i don't have enough mana at first like there's a lot of that preparatory strategic aspect to deck building and that is to say nothing of the mind games that happen when you're actually playing another human being or or more than one i'm absolutely on on the same page as you magic is at its best when it's like three or more people and there's that political aspect brought into it i love it yeah like you can attack now but should you it adds that extra layer because otherwise if it's two people i don't know why the answer the answer is much more commonly just attack as soon as you can then time's running out mm-hmm. actually a lot of board games are like that they have a political element Catan's like that Catan or Catan I don't know how you say it uh, okay so I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend one more I had a whole big list here but um, I'm just gonna do one more because otherwise we'll be here forever and that's gonna be a game called Satisfactory I have put 40 hours into Satisfactory over the past couple of weeks <laughs> which is not really typical for me. I don't typically put a lot of hours into one game. Uh, this one just got its hooks in me. You're uh, an engineer who gets thrown onto a, an untamed planet full of wilderness, and your job is to build machines that assemble parts. And those parts can go into additional machines together to make more complex parts. And that's basically it. You just make a either a hyper-optimized, super-efficient factory, or you make a big mess of spaghetti that doesn't really do much. 
and it's one of those games kind of like um, Opus Magnum where you can probably meet all the challenges without thinking too hard about it. There's literally a crafting bench where you can just sit there and like kind of like cookie clicker, hold the mouse button down and very slowly manually craft a lot of the parts that you would need. So if you wanted to, and you had a lot of patience and liked drudgery and mind numbing stuff, you could just have what you needed in your inventory and sit there and just bang away at the crafting bench making stuff. But if you want to build a factory that operates at 100% efficiency, which you can look at your machines to see the percentage efficiency they're operating at, then you're literally going to have to do math and sit down and draw flow charts. And uh, I think you can go even further than this. I haven't done this yet, but I, I could probably build Excel tools because there's, so like say you have a miner, the miner will extract 120 coal per minute, but then your conveyor belt maybe only does 60 per minute. So you're limiting there on the logistics side of it. Uh, or you can put like a power shard into the miner to, to overclock it or underclock it and have it do maybe only 90 a minute or 150 a minute. And then you have splitters, which will split up to three. So it could do uh, two or three ways and then mergers. So you literally have to figure out like how to load balance with your splitters and your mergers how many different, like if you have one miner, maybe you need two smelters. And uh, I use a tool called Whimsical, which is a flowchart design software. Uh, it's free for their basic plan to literally create flowcharts with the numbers in there to make sure that I'm creating an optimized design schematic before I make it. And that I love it. sounds fairly complicated. It is complicated, but it's very, uh, it's mentally taxing, but also mentally rewarding. And it's, I don't know, it's just one of those games where you'd think it would be very grindy, but actually I'm, I'm surprised to see just how much of my time is spent either designing these factories outside of the game or just implementing them, which doesn't feel grindy because it feels like I'm, I'm just building and designing and making it look aesthetic and making it look nice. In the beginning, there's a bit of a grind because to get power for your factory, you have to cut down trees and grass and just like shove them into these biomass burners. So it kind of sucks. Like you're building whatever you want to build. And every 10 minutes, you got to go into the forest and collect a bunch of biomass. Uh, but it makes it all the more satisfying when you're finally able to get to the level of tech where you can establish coal power, which is self-sustaining. And, and then you're thinking like, okay, well, how many megawatts of power am I generating? Is it going to be enough? Is the capacity enough for everything I'm building? Is building one more power line here going to shut my entire thing down? It's all these different considerations. And it's just a lot of fun. So I recommend every game that we have talked about on this podcast. I think I've played all the ones you mentioned. You mentioned Braid. You mentioned Baba's You. Uh, you mentioned Celeste. And you mentioned Don't Starve, right? Yeah, I think so. I think those were all of them. Uh, oh, and I'll mention one more. I won't talk a bunch about it, but Picross. Have you played Picross? Oh, yeah, yeah. i played a bunch of Picross. Picross is wonderful. It's a little like Sudoku. Um, I enjoy it more. You're basically just using logic to create pictures on a grid by putting either boxes or not it's, boxes. Uh, it's pretty Sudoku. It is. Yeah, it's, I guess it's pretty Sudoku. Yeah. And maybe I should go back and try more Sudoku now that I've played a bunch of Picross. Because when I was a teenager, Sudoku was just like, it was all Greek to me. I didn't have the patience for it. Uh, but I've played a lot. And it's a good game. So maybe I'll like Sudoku as well. So yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty good list of things. Uh, I had more on my list, but what I would like to see 
is other people's recommendations in the YouTube version of this podcast because there's a comment section there. So if you go over to the YouTube channel or the yeah YouTube channel, the Inforium on YouTube, um, you'll find this episode and you can put your game suggestions in the comments. Or if you haven't followed us on Twitter and Instagram, I'm Tom Frankly on both and Martin is Yo Martholomew on both. And uh, let us know there. We'd love to know what games you think are high value for the, I guess, cognitive benefits they bring. And maybe what games are the lowest value. That would have been a fun, like, extra thing to do in here. Like, what's the what's the dumbest possible game that you can play? And why is it Nobby Nobby Boy? It's probably uh, not actually Nobby Nobby Boy. See, that, I was, I was actually going to go with the, the dumbest one that I've played and somewhat enjoyed. It's probably Magikarp Jump. Because it's one of those games where literally you have no control over anything. You just keep clicking. Uh, <laughs> I think... Uh, somebody was telling me they were called like idle games or something, but you just kind of hit buttons and pretty stuff happens and big numbers appear, but you cannot put thought into it because you have no control over anything. You're just like, is it like doodle just, jump or do you it, just jump? No, in doodle jump, you, it, you tap buttons, stuff happens, you catch a Magikarp automatically and you don't really have much choice in what one it is. Okay. It has a certain statistic of how high it can jump. You can't really do a whole lot about that. You run through the main route until it fails, and then you catch a new one, which you also don't really have any control over. But they can be pretty and have cool patterns. So it's it's literally you just kind of you could look away and tap the screen for the most part. Okay. And that's that's it. This doesn't sound like a game part. that I would play, but <laughs> oh no, because to some extent it like also kind of I don't even know if it counts as a game for some definitions, but it does seem yeah. to be one on the surface. That seems like. Um... I played well, okay. it too long and had an existential crisis. So then this I installed it. I don't. I don't want this to be a, an insult to this other game, but like a, a game like Nekoatsume, which is, it just translates to Kitten Collector. It's a phone game that Annie, Annie used to play. Uh, not a whole lot of strategy to that. You just basically like log in every day, as far as I know, and you get some money to buy cat toys with, so you can just deck yeah, out like, your. Like it's just about being pretty. Yeah, because like. Like the Sims, especially like SimCity and, and City Skylines, but like a game like The Sims, you're still laying out a house and kind of building it. But uh, there are certain games where you're literally basically just placing stickers on an environment, which I guess is a creative expression. There's something there. There's something yeah. there more than there is to Magic Carp Jump. <laughs> yeah, although some of those Magic Carps look pretty cool. That is true. I'm trying to think like what what's a game. What's like the dumbest game I've played that I've actually played? And I, I probably would have been better off if I sat down and, and thought about this a bit more. The one that's coming to mind is um, Xenoblade Chronicles 2. And like, it's a cool game, but at least is, from it what... It seems like a strange pick on the surface. Well, from what I played, I don't remember there being any puzzles and there might have been later in the game because JRPGs are hundreds of hours sometimes. I think I put like 30 yeah, hours you, you into You only game. ever get like three steps into any JRPG you convince yourself to Look, buy. 30 hours is 30 hours. But 30 in 30 hours, hours it was basically seconds. just like run here, mash the square button to use my powers that I have, run over here, do this story thing. And it's basically just like run to place and fight enemy with a very like button mashy no thought to it combat system so that's an example of a game where it's like it's not okay i think you picked like literally the dumbest game you could think of where it's almost like is it even a game <laughs> yeah 
where you know this is like this is a game absolutely it's a game but what are you getting out of it it's almost like a movie where you just pause the movie yeah, a bunch a to run around and just like, mash buttons like they're just interactive books or movies or something yeah and there are some jrpgs where there are a lot of good puzzles i remember playing golden sun uh two when i was a kid yeah and good. i was in airs rock for like five hours just pushing gates around and switching buttons because you have to basically figure out how to not even not even get through a maze but like manufacture a maze so it's solvable so yeah there's a lot of good puzzles in that game but uh i don't remember there being a whole lot of good puzzles in xenoblade chronicles 2 maybe later in the game but look if i gotta put 30 hours into a game to hit a puzzle then i'm just gonna assume it doesn't have any puzzles that's just me yeah you really gotta (laughs) stop buying jrpgs i really do i should i should never buy another one i should know myself by now (laughs) i don't know there are probably other ones that i could think of the other one that i think of right now is um oh what is it called it's like this game on my phone where you just switch you're like at lumberjack and you just switch which side of the tree you're on and that's it that's that's all you do yep not that complicated (laughs) not that uh timberman that's what it's called yeah timberman doesn't that's have like a whole just lot of, a reflex thing i mean there's a little bit of planning you get to the point where you're like okay I, I can see that branch up there i know that in three hits it will hit me so i can hit twice and then switch but uh once you kind of know that there's really not a whole lot else there to learn it's just reaction time basically <laughs> uh but yeah so I think that's where we'll call it. Would love to hear other people's suggestions for games that make you smarter. Um, would probably love to try some of your suggestions. I know people, and I guess I'll get this out of the way. I know people who know that I like to play Satisfactory are going to recommend Factorio and Dyson Sphere Program. I have purchased Factorio, having yet played it, and then Dyson Sphere Program is on my list. So uh, feel free to say it anyway, because I know people will, but I do have those two on my list already. So we'll check those out. But yeah, other suggestions for games like Baba is You, things like that, welcome. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening to this episode of the Inforium. You can find the show notes over at, oh boy, I don't have the actual show notes thing. Oh, here it is. Ah, here's the Notion document that you titled Game Makes Smart Very. I thought that was a fitting title. <laughs> uh, oh, but the number of it is still 999 so i need to figure out which oh, no. number it's 315 i didn't make smart very enough you didn't make smart very enough yeah it's it's 315 which makes it episode 15 of what did i just do oh is perfectionism a bet well actually oh, no. i don't what even know doing? anymore what i messed everything up i messed, messed everything, everything up martin up. What did it's I do? Too complicated of a system, Tom. You just what did you okay. do? Okay, you deleted it all. Well, I just put the wrong number in there. So let me look at the sir. Okay, fourteen was social life. What was perfectionism? That was eleven. That's right. That's not okay. close to fifteen. That's a different number. It, that's true. Okay, game make very game make smart very is three fifteen. So, theinforium.com slash fifteen. That's all you need to know, dear listener. You don't need to sit here and listen to us try to figure out our stupid notion system uh that is where we'll have show notes i imagine there's going to be several links there we talked about several different games so 
check those out if you're curious. Otherwise, don't, because I'm not your dad. I can't tell you what to do. Uh, but I can tell you where to subscribe to this podcast if that's something that you would like to do. So theinforium.com is a great place to do it. Uh, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or basically any other podcast app out there. I've been using one called Air, A-I-R-R, which allows you to hit a button and it will basically save a snippet of the last 45 seconds and even try to transcribe it. And then send it to Readwise, which sends it to Notion. Pretty cool. So if there's like a little thing in this episode and you're like, oh, I gotta remember that. Well, you could get Air or Pocket Casts or whatever you want. I can't, I can't tell you what. Smoke, is there a Smoke Signal podcast app? Nope. There should be. But if you're in the woods and there's just no headphones that's, but a lot uh, of smoke. That's not good for the environment. There's no reason to burn stuff. That's true. That's fair. All right. No smoke we're, signal we're in, podcast we're in Colorado. Out. You know, that's not a, that's not a great place to be doing doing fires. That's true. We're under a stage two burn ban. Can't be making smoke right now. What about like a bubble, bubble signals? You know, like soap bubbles? I've never once tried to imagine that before. <laughs> I honestly you think of something know. new every day, I guess. You do, yeah. Anyway, that's where you can go to subscribe. On Apple Podcasts, there is a way to rate and review the show. So if you like the show, you can give us a five-star rating and let us know what you think. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Uh, or, or don't. I don't care. Well, I do care. But, you know, hopefully hopefully we're better than, like, one star. Uh, and I think that's about it. So, as always, thank you for hanging out with us. And we will see you in the next episode. Stay cute.